0: Good morning. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, And today we're going to continue in our ongoing study through the book of Ephesians. So if you're new to Safe Haven, um, how we do things here, we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. And so today we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 5. And so just a little bit of a recap... Um, what we've seen, the first part of um, Ephesians in chapters 1 through 3, Paul kind of instructs, instructs us on how we are partakers of grace. Um, through Christ, believers receive spiritual blessings in Christ. We're united to Him. He, he, is, he is uniting all things together for His glory and our good. So, and and he, he lavishes us with these doctrines of grace. And He reminds us that we are partakers of this grace. And so in the second part of Ephesians 4 through 6, Paul's going to direct us in uh, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And so we're going to shift from being uh, from him r- reminding us that we're partakers of grace to him instructing us in what it looks like to be a practitioner of grace. So not only we are we partakers, but we are also practitioners. It's both doctrine and duty. And so... That's kind of where we've been. So the past couple of weeks we've seen that we are practitioners of unity. We are practitioners of purity. And today we're going to kind of see a Paul shift the language to where we are imitators of God. And so before we even get into this text, like I prayed, it is a hard text. There's some hard truths in this text. Um, and as we come to texts like this, it's easy to, to view the communicator who's ever talking about it. To, sit, to view them as someone who is preaching down to you. And I want to say this before we ever get into the text. I am not preaching down to you. I am standing hand in hand with you as a recipient of this text. I need it just as much as you do. Okay, so I just want to throw that out there before we ever get into it. And so, point of illustration. So there's this, there was this relatively new restaurant a couple of years ago in Northport. Um, of which I will not name, um, to protect its identity. Um, but like all new restaurants, um, there's usually kinks to be worked out in new restaurants, right? Um, service and food and all that kind of fun stuff. Well, we, we go to this said restaurant with my family, um, and we wait for over an hour and a half to get our food and <laughs> And my dad orders his steak, and he orders uh, beef jerky with his steak. So, like He orders it super well done. Um, I don't really know why. I'll pray for him. Um, but anyways, <laughs> he gets his steak. <laughs> he cuts into it, and it looks like somebody poured red Kool-Aid all over <laughs> his plate. It was like it still had fur attached to it. It was just super, super rare. And anyways, I recall whenever <laughs> we get our ticket... We're there for like almost two hours. It's just, it's a cluster. It's just a cluster. We go up and then the hostess, which, you know, she's trying to be nice. How was your meal? And then I will never forget this. He said, do you want me to tell you what you want to hear or what you need to hear? And at that moment, I'm like, oh my gosh, I I don't know this man. Um, And so today's text, I say all that to say, Today's text is one of those things that we need to hear. It's not what we want to hear. It's not, it's not especially in our Western all-inclusive culture, um, it's not what we want to hear. But Paul sees it and God sees it as valuable for us to hear. Um, and, so, and, that, and he's going to focus in on the necessity of holiness in the life of believers. And so, here we go. We're going to dive in. I'll read through it. And then we're going to break it apart just a little bit different today. Um, It says this, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But, but, here we go. Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness... I can't. I have struggled with this word today. Covetousness, whatever, must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are all out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God, and of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words because for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Verse 15. Look carefully, then, at how you walked, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But filled, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Woo! That's a mouthful. Um, So today, like I said, we're going to do it a little bit different. If we were to go and and nitpick that apart, we would be here for three weeks. And so what we're going to do today is Paul gives us a list of do not dos and a list of And so to be grounded in Christ, he's going to say, do not do these things. And to be grounded in Christ, do these things. And so I think it would be helpful for us to just look at the two lists that Paul gives us throughout the text and then tie it all together at the end. And I think you'll see how it fits together because there's a linchpin in this text. And so list number one. Ready for this? Those grounded in Christ do not Number one, take part in any sexual immorality, impurity, or covetousness of words I cannot say today. Um, But we'll roll with it. Verse three, but sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you. Must not be named among you. So keep in mind the context. Um, These verses are addressed to Christians who were living in the notoriously sinful pagan port city of Ephesus. So kind of an ancient New Orleans, if you will. Um, the dominant religion was the worship of the goddess, the sexual goddess Diana. And so Diana, with the, with the worship of her, ritual prostitution was just a way of life in this culture. Like It just happened and it was celebrated, it was normal. And sexual perversion was exalted as a way of living in this culture. Sounds familiar, right? And so, Paul instructs us to not take part in these things. And so, sexual immorality and purity. Let's just tackle this bad boy real quick. This is a big one. This comes from the Greek word "pornēia," where we get our English word, pornography. And so, it's kind of a junk drawer Greek word. And it includes, but it's definitely, definitely not limited to, Friends with benefits, porn, adultery, reading erotic novels, lusting, sexual activity outside of the marriage bed, even if it is with another consenting adult, um, whatever. It's just a big junk drawer of nasty. And Paul says, no, stay away from these things. Don't let them be named among you. And here's the deal, and I'm sure it was the same in Paul's day, Uh I've I've experienced some of these things in conversations with people throughout my... I've only been in ministry for eight years now. So I'm sure he dealt with the same. And so we attempt to excuse them. And again, I am with you in this. I've used these same things, phrases before. We attempt to excuse our behavior with phrases like, well, what if we're going to get married? We're going to get married eventually. Well, we're engaged. I bought her this promise ring. That counts for something, right? I truly love them. My my personal favorite that I experienced when I was in student ministry. But we're married before God's eyes. No, God's eyes is burning rage red against you. Do not do that. No, I'm sorry. Okay, rant over. Um, or, Or another personal favorite. But does the original Greek really mean this? Here's the deal. If you have to do a Greek word study on Ephesians chapter five verse three to attempt to excuse yourself, there's a really good chance that you're not pursuing holiness with your sexual ethic, and that's just true. If you have to, but it's not this, but, but, but it's not, I'm not quite going that far, but, but, but you see, that's why he uses the junk drawer word. And instead of we opt for weak phrases to justify ourselves like, but we're not doing this, and, and here's the deal. And it's what I used to, used to tell students. A better way to view it is, but is it really saying, is, it, is not, is it really saying this or can I do this? The better question is, does this, without a doubt, bring glory to God? If Paul instructs us in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether we're eating or drinking or whatever we do, it's whatever do all to the glory of God are we bringing glory to God in this that's the better question to ask the Westminster Confession of Faith the very first question in it to catechize kids with is what is man's chief end man's chief end is to glorify God that's what you were created to do and so the question is not can I do this or should I do this or should, should I not do this. Is does it bring glory to God? Yes, but you have liberty and freedom to do it. No, then don't. Wage war against it. He goes on to say, don't take part in sexual morality or impurity, but also covet justness. And so when I covet somebody, I, I see something desirable that I want in an unhealthy way, and I res- resent that person for it, or I resent that place for it. For instance, Jeremy drives an awesome Forerunner uh, that I love, and I and I'm mad at Jeremy because he drives the Forerunner that I want. Do you see how ridiculous this is? <laughs> or, um, <laughs> or I'm not six five, can bench press four hundred and fifty pounds, and have the vocals of Shane and Shane, Andrew Elmore. Um, <laughs> You know, it's it's wanting something that somebody else has that you don't, and you resent them for it. Paul says, let that not be named among you. So that's the first thing he says in the do nots. Number two, verse four. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. So... Take part in no filthy or foolish talk. So the Greek word for foolish talk is morologia. So moro, where we get our English word moron, and logia, talk. So Paul says, Let the, take part in no filthy or moronic talk. Let that be not even a part of who you are. So what is, what is, what is this? What is he talking about? Y'all know what, I'm, no, y'all know what he's talking about. He's talking about rock, locker room talk. That was just talk amongst the guys, you know? We're just cutting up. It could be, It's those kind of jokes that you crack around a fire pit with your friends, but your grandmother would roll over in her grave if she heard it. It's those kind of jokes. You know what I'm talking about? It's that kind of stuff. It's that inappropriate, vulgar, crude, sexual joking. It's that see how far you can take it to get a laugh kind of stuff. Paul says this empty, wasteful, and idiotic talk is sub-Christian. Proverbs 15 verse 2 says this, The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. And so Paul says we should war against these things. We should steer away from these things. And so is Paul saying that God is like a cosmic killjoy? Like you're you're not allowed to laugh. You can't have fun. You can't make a joke. No, that's that's not what it is. Proverbs seventeen twenty two says, a joyful heart is good medicine. Ecclesiastes 3, 4 says, there's a time to laugh. It just says to steer away from nasty, crude stuff that doesn't build you up, man. The Lord is full of joy and He wants you to be full of joy. I mean, there's, there's clean comedy out there, man. Like, we, I remember, this was years ago. There's this Christian comedian named Tim Hawkins. Y'all may be familiar with him or not. I'm just, gonna, I'm just being completely vulnerable. Our church was going to it, the church where I was at at the time. And I was like, this is going to be the corniest junk I have ever been a part of. You know, like, this. Kid, this is going to be a dumpster fire. You know, and y- y'all, I kid you not. I laughed until I cried the entire two hours. That dude was hilarious. And you know what? There wasn't a single crude joke. There wasn't a single... Vulgar thing in the entire show. Like, humans are just goofy. And like, you can just laugh at just being human, you know? And so Paul says to steer away from these things. He's not against joy, but he is, he is uh, against filthy and foolish talk. And so steer, being grounded in Christ, we, we pull away from that. Number three in the list of to be grounded in Christ, do not... Take part in unfruitful works of darkness. Verse 11, look with me. Take part in a, a no unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. This could be a number of things. Um, including, but not limited to, engaging in other religions. It's anything pagan. I love the language that Paul uses. He says, unfruitful darkness... Does it bear healthy fruit? If not, steer away from it. Is it light? Is it life-giving? If not, it's dark. Steer away from it. Anything unfruitful and dark, take no part in it. And this language shines light on the reality that when we're in the dark, we're taking part of the th- we're taking part in things that we know that we shouldn't be doing. D.L. Moody has this quote that I love. It's so good. He says, character is what you are in the dark. Say it again. Character is what you are in the dark. Character is what you are behind closed doors. Character is what you are when no one else is around. And here's the deal, and I've been here before too. We assume that behind closed doors with the lights out that God can't see what we're doing. It's like we get this crazy thought that like God's not omniscient or omnipresent. He's like he's not everywhere and knows everything. And we like get this idea of God sitting on his throne like, "Hmm, hope they're not doing anything bad in that room that I can't see in. You know, like I wonder what I hope they use caution. You know, that's not what he's doing. <laughs> that's not how it works. That's not how it works. Um, and so... These unfruitful works of darkness It's visiting this website. It's doing this or that with this guy or this lady. It's fudging the report. It's whatever. And Paul says expose those things for what they are. And so continuing on. It's dark, right? It's kind of like heavy. (laughs) It's It's one of those things that you need to hear but you don't want to hear. Number four. To be grounded in Christ is do not take part in drunkenness. Verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And so more context. So Ephesus is at the heart of the Greek culture, and it was a wine country. And so where overindulgence was common in this culture. Matter of fact, many of the people in Ephesus, they would worship the Greek god Bacchus, which was the wine god. And part of their worship of Bacchus was to just keep getting intoxicated and intoxicated. And that was your act of worship. Whatever happens, happens. And so here's the deal, and not where we're going at, at Safe Haven. We are not against having a drink at Safe Haven. You will not hear that communicated ever. Um, it is a gift, it is a gift to be enjoyed in its proper context, being that, is, that you are of age and you're not causing others to stumble in the process. The problem is when we take good things and we turn them into God things. And we take good things and we pervert them and we push the limits and we use these good things as a numbing, pseudo-escape from reality. And that's what Paul is getting at. He's like, don't take a good thing and turn it into an idle thing. To where you have to, one more thing, one more thing, one more thing to numb yourself and to escape your current reality. And this isn't just alcohol. So as you read this, like... Ooh, glad he said wine and not whiskey. No. No. It, it's anything that controls you. Any substance that controls you is what Paul is getting at. Don't it, it, he goes on, I love how he ties this in. Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Paul tells us if you want to be filled with something, if you want to be controlled with something, be controlled by the Spirit of God. And so, again, strong stern language, right? That's stern language. Look in verse 5. It doesn't get much more stern than this. For you may be sure of this, bank on this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And that doesn't get me giddy and excited to, to even read that. That is terrifying. It's terrifying. But I think he's using that stern language so you can see that those who make an unrepentant, habitual lifestyle out of these things is not a part of the family, cannot be a part of the family. And so, he gives us this list of do not do's to be grounded in Christ. But then on the flip side, he gives us this list of if you want to be grounded in Christ, do these things. Look at me on uh, verse 1. The first thing is this, imitate God. Therefore, be imitators of God. That's a lofty goal, right? <laughs> imitate God. Like, if, if I told you your job description was imitate God, that's a pretty lofty job description, right? It's like giving you a shot glass and telling you to go collect the entire Atlantic Ocean in it, Right? It's a, that's a big deal. But I don't think it's, I don't, what I think Paul is getting at is he doesn't want us to be overwhelmed, but, but to see it as an act of worship. So imitating God is continually asking these questions like, how would God respond to this? How would, what would God do in this situation? How would God react? What would God think and feel about this? Then our lives become God's, becomes God-centered. And we, when we imitate him, we image him. So you want to know how to image God? You live this out. The revealed Word of God. And so, this is worship for the believer. So the first thing we see is, Paul says, to be grounded in Christ, imitate God. And the second thing is this. Walk in love, walk in light, and walk in wisdom. Verses 2, verse 8, and verse 15. Verse 2 says this. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. Verse 8 says this, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Verse 15, Look carefully at how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And so walking in love, light, and wisdom looks a lot like waging war against sin and waging war for holiness. I think that's what Paul is getting at here. And I believe that that's best done, and I think the Scriptures teach, it, teach us, I think the Godhead itself shows us that we, are best, uh, we, we best operate within the lens of community. So, so we, we wage war against sin in community. Whether that's a community groups, or whether that's DNA groups, or whatever that is. And so Paul says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And so we see this familial language Paul uses. So as beloved children, if you are a believer, then we are spiritual brothers and we are spiritual sisters. And as, and as spiritual siblings, we walk with one another and we bear one another's burdens, as Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 6 verse 4. And here's the deal. And here's the not-so-fun part. Part of walking in love and walking in light with one another is exposing darkness within each other. And this happens within community. It can only happen within community. I meet with two guys. uh, It's my DNA group within my community group. And we meet every month. Once a month at Session Bar downtown, we we have a drink and we walk through what we're going through in life. And they call me out on what they've seen where I'm failing. I walk, we walk together. I see, I call them out where I see that they're not, you know, that they're failing in their walk. And it's it's just it's a good encouraging thing. And Paul is telling us you need that. You need to be walking in community, exposing darkness and and, and bringing in light to one another. We have this plant. So Heather's mom, I think I got the years mixed up in the first service. So Heather's mom's like 60-something years old. And she gave her this plant that she got when she was in college. And this sucker is still living. I don't know... She gave it the fountain of youth or something when she first got it. I don't know how this thing is still alive. It's this little, um, uh, like, aloe plant. I don't know how it's still living. But anyways, all that to say, each and every winter we have to bring our plants inside um, or they'll just frost and die. And so we brought this plant that Heather's mom gave her. It's not so uh, youthful, this plant. And so it, it was in this dark room and we didn't have any sunlight on it. And this plant started developing a fungus in which Heather started freaking out because this fungus kept growing on this plant and it was choking the life out of it. And so I'm like freaking out. I'm like, my wife's losing her mind over this 40-year-old plant. I don't know what to do. So I call her mom that gave us the plant. Like, hey, we got this uh, mutant fungus growing on this thing. What do I do to kill it um, I don't, without killing the plant? She's, and she's like, well, what does it look like? What do I, you know, kind of describe it to me? And then she was like, oh, yeah, just let's comment on those. Just take it out and put it in direct light, and it'll kill it off. Sure enough, I take it outside, I leave it, you know, I take it out there for a few hours, bring it in at night, take it out for a few hours. And slowly but surely, the light killed that fungus. And that's how it is for believers. When we dwell in darkness, sin will choke the life out of us. And in community, what we are doing is we're pulling each other out of the darkness and into the light where the light can expose it and to wage war against that sin. And we are to pull one another out of unfruitful works of darkness and expose them to the light of life being Jesus Himself as He describes Himself in John chapter 8, verse 12. And that's not always fun, and it's not always easy. Easy. As a matter of fact, I would argue more times than not, it's hard and really uncomfortable. Really uncomfortable. And for those of you who have been there and done that, you know what I'm talking about. But distinctive Christian living is self-sacrificial love. Is, sacri- is, is, is sacrificing. Is this friend gonna still like me? Is he still gonna, are we still gonna be friends after this? If you truly love this person, you'll embrace that self sacrificial love and pull them into the light. Jesus said hard truths not to be a jerk or to be a cosmic killjoy, but because he loved us and he was out for our ultimate good. And being an imitator looks a lot like being about God's glory and other people's good even if that includes exposing darkness, which it does. And so that's what led Paul to to say this phrase here in verse 14. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We're not exactly sure who Paul is quoting here in commentaries. It's debated. The the common thing that I could find is some apostolic baptismal hymn that was sung over converts as they rose up out of the water. But it doesn't matter the origin, because Paul's application for what he's using it here is... Completely clear. Um, What he's saying is... What he's saying is um, we need to... There's some people who are light in the Lord who are slumbering and they need to wake up. It is possible to come into this room and to sing songs and to be completely asleep to the lyrics. It is possible to come and to, to be well respected amongst people but to be completely asleep and not awake. It's possible to pray and and to loft up mouthing phrases that we hear other people say while being asleep. It's possible to, to walk and end up in harm's way. And what Paul is saying is, wake up church. Wake up. If we're the light, we must act as light making manifest all of its incredible functions, both positive and negative. The positive function, which is producing all that is good and right and true, and the negative function, which hurts, is exposing those unfruitful works of darkness in one another. But look at the promise He gives. And Christ will shine on you. See, holiness is not just the absence of wickedness. It is the presence of love. It is the presence of Christ in us, the hope of glory. Colossians 1.27 And so, as we war against our sin, as we, as we expose the darkness in one another, we also expose them to the presence of love. Christ in us, the hope of glory. So it's not just the rejection of impurity, but it's the practice of grace towards others. And so, he says not only walk in love, light, and wisdom, but he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18 says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And so like a sailboat, the Holy Spirit propels us in life, in holiness, and in sanctification. If you're growing in Christ, it's not because of your efforts, it's because the Holy Spirit is the one propelling you and initiating it within you. And so as believers, we know that in Ezekiel, it tells us that the Holy Spirit causes us to walk in the statutes and the ways of the Lord. It's not you, it's the Spirit at work in you. We also know in the New Testament that the same Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, is the same Holy Spirit, if you're a believer, that dwells within you. Which is fascinating. And so, But when we're walking in darkness and we have sin, it's like being a sailboat with our sails down. And so the Holy Spirit hasn't ceased to be good. He hasn't ceased to stop blowing. Remember, Jesus in John chapter 4 says the Holy Spirit is like a wind. He blows where He wishes and, wo- and goes where He wishes. And so, if we're not moving, it's not because that he ceased to be good and he ceased to stop uh, blowing. It's because we're not moving because our cell is down. We're we're not do. We're not. We don't want to hear what the Holy Spirit has to say. We want to do what he's telling us to do. We want to go where he's telling us to be. And so, being filled with the Holy Spirit is not like you're this great sailboat and you're not moving because (laughs) he hasn't shown up yet. That's not how it works. The Holy Spirit is 100% here. He's always moving. He's always going. And if you're not moving, it's because your proverbial cell is down and tied up in darkness. That's what Paul is getting at. And being filled with the Holy Spirit is repenting of our sin. It's repenting of our rebellion. And it's being freed to be transformed and to be molded, even though that may be painful, and to be propelled forward like we were meant to be as sailboats. And so, if you're not being propelled forward, it's not because the Holy Spirit is unwilling, it's because you are. And because I am. Number four. To be grounded in Christ means to sing in worship to the Lord and to give thanks. So Paul breaks these down in two, in two separate um or actually in three separate um, instances, but I think they're intricately tied together. So he says in verse, verse 19, Address one another, be filled with the Spirit, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the problem, our problem with all this, our problem with the things that we do not need to be embracing, the problem we struggle with is that we are all hedonistic. In and of ourselves, we are hedons. We are hedonistic. We have hedonistic natures, and that is, indul- we, we delight in indulging our appetites for pleasure. We, we delight in indulging our appetites for comfort, for hoarding material wealth, instead of being joyful givers like God is. And our natural hedonistic tendencies crave sexual disobedience. We crave to be the, the, the big joker amongst our friends. We, we crave the mental escape through, this, through substances from the reality. We crave those things. We don't have to teach those things. You are naturally that way. I'm naturally that way. That's just how we naturally are. But for the believer, as our narrative is rewritten through the work of Christ, Paul clarifies the healthy alternative to hedonism is thanksgiving. And so the fundamental solution to our immorality, to our impurity, and to our greed is nothing more complicated than thanksgiving. Because darkness in Christians is generally caused to some degree by spiritual amnesia. And we forget God's grace and then we feel sorry for ourselves. And in feeling sorry for ourselves, we feel entitled to indulge our sinful appetites. And so... Paul says to sing and worship and to give thanks to God. The God who gives you grace. Remember back in Ephesians 1. It's the same God who gives you grace, who gives you peace, who has blessed you, who's chosen you, who's adopted you, who's made you holy, who's made you blameless, who's predestined you, who's redeemed you, who forgave you, you who's united you to Him, who gave you hope, who sealed you with the Holy Spirit. And Paul is saying remember those things and be thankful and let that inform your life. In other words, as John Piper likes to say, be a Christian hedonist. Don't war, against, uh, don't, don't war against who you naturally are. Yes, war against your sinful tendencies. Yes, do that. But you are naturally a hedonist, so what you, you need to transform your hedonism, as Piper would say. And Piper says... Uh, defines Christian hedonism as this way. Where God is most glorified in us by us being most satisfied in Him. And we're most, when we're most satisfied in Him, we crave what we, He craves. We delight in what He delights in. We hate what He hates. And so we, we, we embrace a Christian hedonist mindset. It's an attitude of gratitude. And so... And then lastly, to be grounded in Christ means to submit to one another out of the reverence for Christ. Verse 21, where he wraps it up and says, Submit to one another out of the reverence for Jesus. And so, what Paul's saying is to listen to fellow brothers and sisters as they speak into your life. And this is intricately tied to exposing that darkness. When, 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 they, when our fellow brothers and sisters call us into community and call, and call out our darkness and expose our darkness to it, that doesn't mean you have to immediately agree with them. It doesn't mean that you necessarily even have to like them. But what it does mean is that you're at least open to hear from them and if they're right in exposing your darkness, you're willing to repent and to make a course correction. Why? Because to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be submissive to the truth. And so, Paul's given us these two big lists. Do not do these things. Do do these things. To be grounded in Christ. So how in the world do we do these things? (laughs) If you're a legalist, you've been sitting there jotting down your list... Loving the list, man. you like, if I can just do this, I, if, I can, if I can do these things, I'm, I got it made, man. I got it made in the shade. I can tackle these things. I'm not, I, I, can, I won't get drunk. I, you know, I won't do these things. I won't, I won't take part of that. Well, the problem is, if you're going to do that, then you also need to go to the Old Testament and continue jotting down the rest of the 613 laws and rules and do's and do nots to keep up with. The point of the list is that you can't keep the list. That's the point. The point of the list is to show you you can't measure up to the list. Isaiah 64, 6 tells us that even our righteous deeds, even our best efforts at keeping these lists are like filthy rags. The Greek for that filthy rags is like dirty female things. So that's what that's talking about. Even your righteous deeds are filthy rags before God, carried out in your own effort. And so it's easy to see these lists and become very moralistic, but that's not the point of the text. The point is not to do these things and to not do these things and to earn His favor and so delight in me this way. It's not for you to bind to some moralistic therapeutic deism that says that God is some distant offhand deity that wants you to clean yourself up, to tidy yourself up, to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and pat you on the bottom and send you on your way for a better life. That's not how our Father is. How we walk in love and how we push back darkness is not by focusing on ourselves, but by understanding that we're beloved children. Call those... Throw all those red and greens up there for me. So he's already walked through this list of do not be filled with sexual morality and period of covetousness. Do not uh, let filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking. Do not take part in unfruitful works of darkness. Don't get drunk. But do imitate God, do walk in love, walk in light, walk in wisdom, be filled with the Spirit, sing to the Lord, give thanks always and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And He's got this big list of do's and do not's and the linchpin for all of this. How do we do this is we remember that we are beloved children. That is the key to the entire section of this text. You are a beloved child. Child who has been adopted into a new family and been given a new identity. Ephesians 1 says that we are imitators of God as beloved children. We've learned in Ephesians chapter 1 that we're adopted into the family of God through Jesus. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, Paul gives us a discourse about how through Christ's work on the cross, he brings us into this family, and no longer do we have to approach God as distant but we can approach him as abba father he is our dad he's our father he's a good father and to be a believer is to be adopted and to have god as father and here's the deal many of you know mine and heather's story of we walked through three and a half years of infertility and we were told by the the uh, infertility clinic up in birmingham you will not have a biological kid which is a whole another funny story. God was like, hey, watch this. And uh, gives us two kids back to back. Um, <clears throat> but anyways, all that to say, I remember walking through the adoption. We were walking through the process, reading the books, talking to people, hearing the stories. I just couldn't help but be overwhelmed at the gospel imperatives that is adoption. In adoption, it's at the Father's initiative... And it's at the Father's discretion that you're brought into the family. And so if you are a believer in this room, God picked you. He picked you. Hope that stirs your affections, the reality that He chose you. And in choosing you, you receive His inheritance rights to the kingdom of God. And walking through adoption as well, I learned that it was super costly. To bring an orphan into a family costs around $30,000. Don't get me started on that rant because I think it's literally absurd. But how much more costly, believer, was your adoption into the family of God? The cost of your adoption. Your adoption papers were signed with the blood of the incarnate Son of God. That is weighty. And that is precious and costly. Our adoption costs the crushing of God incarnate. And so what Paul is saying, the linchpin is not, do I, how do I do these things? How do I not do these things? It's, remember who's you are. Are believer. Remember whose you are. Remember your spiritual blessings in Christ. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. And why does he do all these things? Because he's good and he's kind and he's abundant in steadfast love for his people. And here's the deal. I've had this conversation actually with some of you on the father heart of God. And and what that looks like. And, and some of you struggle who are believers with this image of God as Father. Because you may have had a, a father in your life here on earth that is, in your view is one of a deadbeat man with little to no involvement or interest in your life. Or maybe one who's dangled your failures and, you, and where you don't measure up over your head. Or, or, maybe, or maybe that's some of your view of God. That, that, that He's left you. He doesn't really know you. He hopes you do well. He, th- he hopes it works out for you. He pats you on the back and sends you on your way and that's it. And that's not the view of God that we find in Scripture. The Father we find in Scripture tells us in the psalm that He's numbered the very number of hairs on your head. That He knows you by name. That He delights in you, Zephaniah 3. That He sings over you. That He, that he, that he exalts over you with loud singing. That's the Father that we find in the Scriptures. And in Scripture, God is a good Father, and a good Father doesn't walk out on His kids. And once we grasp that identity, that identity as beloved children will 100% inform your activity. If you would truly embrace that identity, it will inform your activity. And once we see God as Father, the key to being grounded is not doing, the, not, not doing these things and, and do doing these things. The, the, the key is, who is my Father? Am I chasing after the Father of the Scriptures or the Father of disobedience? And so, children want to grow up to be like their dad. And if you had a good dad who provided for you, who took care of you, who loved you, who played with you, who, who, who really saw you as the apple of his eye. You want to grow up to be like him. And I saw it in here a few weeks ago, uh, however many weeks ago, the daddy-daughter dance was. I saw dads taking their little girls by their hands and dancing with them and and seeing these little girls look up at their dad and light up at a man who's loving them and serving them and delighting in them and, and, and taking time with them and enjoying them. And I can guarantee you that little girl is going to grow up one day and want to marry a man like her dad who loves them and takes care of them. Children want to be like their dad. And in the family of God, we're brought into this new family and we're given a new identity. And in 1 Peter 1.16, it's no longer you have to be holy because I am holy. It's rather we view it as I get to be holy because my Father is holy. Do you see the difference? It's not I have to, it's I get to. And so, if God is my Father, I want to live for His glory. It's, it's my Father loves me and He wants what's best for me. He knows that these things, these, these things in the red, He knows that those things will ultimately choke me out and destroy me. And like a good dad, He's instructing us to steer away from those things. And those things in the green, he, he wants us to be full of joy. He, he loves us. He delights in us. He, he wants us to know that we can trust Him. And He's after our ultimate good, the end of Romans chapter 8... He wants us to walk in those things. And so, unbeliever, as we wrap up, as one who hasn't trusted in the finished work of Christ, all this stuff about adoption is not true for you yet. You are still a spiritual orphan. But the good news of the gospel in Psalm 68 verse 5 tells us that God is a father to the fatherless, And every single one of us in this room, myself included, was a spiritual orphan at one time. But the Lord in His grace <laughs> reached down out of His initiative, out of His discretion, and pulled us out and brought us into His family and signed our adoption papers to the person and work of His Son on our behalf. But you may, you may be thinking, man, you don't get it. I am the chief of sexual disobedience. I'm, I'm, I'm the king of crude humor. I'm, I'm an idolater. I constantly look for an escape from this cruddy place. That father doesn't want me, man. He, he couldn't possibly want me. And that's where I would argue that you're not familiar with the father that is in the Scriptures. Romans 5.8 does not tell us that while we get our act together... Christ died for us? No. While we were what? Still sinners. Christ died for us. While you were still in your sexual sexual disobedience, while you were still cracking crude jokes, while you were still in unfruitful works of darkness, while you were still looking for a mental escape, Christ died for you. And to take it, Even farther in richer, 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that for our sake He being God made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So in grace the Father gave His Son and in grace the Son submitted Himself to the cross. And the reality of this verse is that on the cross, Jesus became our sexual disobedience. Jesus became our crude joke. Jesus became our drunkenness. Jesus became our darkness. And in turn, He died for us and He rose again, defeating sin, defeating death, defeating hell. And now He rules and reigns as King. And the reality of that verse, 2 Corinthians 5, is that now because He became those things, we are now seen as righteous and pure and holy before the Father. That's grace, unbeliever. Embrace it, repent of your sin, and rest in the finished work of Christ. Today could be the day of salvation. And believer. Ben, you can come on back up. Believer, as beloved children of God, imitate your dad. Within adoption, your identity changes. You're no longer sons of disobedience under the wrath of God, but you are rather, as Paul says it, a child of light. And this is all because of Christ. Verse 2, Ephesians 5, 2. Walk in love. Why can we walk in love? Because Christ first loved us and He gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice for God. Believer, you need the gospel just as much as the unbeliever. I need the gospel just as much as anyone else. And so, Jesus took our wrath and He became our disobedience on the cross. And through Jesus, we are now children of the light. And by His grace, God's grace shines brightly, believer, on you today. And His delight shines brightly upon you. And God will never leave you. If you don't get anything else, believer, get this. God will never leave you nor forsake you. He will never love you any less. He has sealed you with the Holy Spirit. He will never disown you. You are His child forever, period. Your heavenly Father loves you and He likes you. And so imitating God is no longer a laundry list of to-dos and not-to-dos. It's rather embracing an identity as a beloved child, knowing that you have a dad who loves you, and who embraced the darkness for you, and you can trust in that. To wrap it up, as the old hymn goes, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, his mercy is more, is stronger than darkness, new every morning. Our sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. Let's pray. And so, Lord, as we are met with a stern text, Lord, I pray that as believers that we are also met with a gentle hug of your mercy and your grace. And so Lord as we come to the communion tables Lord I pray believers would have their affection stirred as they examine and they see their brokenness and, their, and our emptiness and I pray that we will be met with the sufficient work of your son on our behalf. And Lord that that would stir us to live a life that is worthy of of our calling, a life that imitates a dad who is after the ultimate good of his kids. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.